Sound Off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Wednesday, September 23rd. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Uh, I'm going to keep things pretty brief because I want to get to the show today. It's pretty. It's a pretty exciting one and pretty special one today. Adrian Stimson and A.A. A. Bronson are two Canadian artists who have made an art piece about uh, apologies. It's a, called A Public Apology to Sick, Sick a Nation. It is A.A. A. Bronson, as he says, hurtling his entire life towards trying to apologize as best he can for the sins, for the genocide perpetrated by his ancestors against Adrian Stimson's ancestors. And you're going to hear the two of them talk about that together. As I, as I said to a couple of people so far, it's, it's nice to hear about apologies. We talk a lot about apologies. It's rare to actually hear them happen between two people. And that's what you're about to hear. Okay, after that, J.L. Richardson is by with a pretty spooky, pretty spooky book pick for, you know, the fall. I don't know if we're going to get a trick-or-treating. Nice horror book might do the trick when you can't go out and get a big Turk. After that, Jyoti will be here to talk about her parents, who were uh, legendary session musicians, and how they influenced her to become maybe the most groundbreaking new artist in jazz right now. All right, show starts now. Hi, welcome to the show. It is Wednesday. Saying sorry isn't always the easiest task. It takes guts, humility, empathy. You got to do it without really knowing if your apology will be received or rejected. You got to know why you're actually apologizing. And that's especially true when you take on the task of apologizing for your ancestors' wrongdoings, which is what A.A. Bronson set out to do. A.A. is a Canadian artist. He's always known that his family participated in the colonization and genocide of indigenous people in Canada. But over the past five years, he's chosen to confront that history head on. The result is an art project he calls a public apology to Siksika Nation. And it was through that project that he met Adrian Stimson. Adrian Stimson is an award-winning visual artist whose work deals with the history of indigenous people in Canada. And when A.A. and Adrian met, they discovered something that changed the entire course of their project. But I'm going to let them tell you all about that. This is the third installment of our week-long series, Art Connects on Q. Adrian Stimson joined me from Siksika Nation in Alberta. A.A. Bronson joined me from Berlin, Germany, uh, where I started by noticing something interesting about his Zoom name. A.A., I, I should point out the obvious. Uh, you're, you're known as A.A. Bronson, but you were born Michael Timms, and that's actually the name I can see on your, on your Zoom call there right now. That's right. Your great-grandfather was a man named Reverend John William Timms. Who was he? Uh, he was the first Anglican uh, missionary to Siksika Nation just after Treaty 7 when the reserves were first set up. He was, he was sent out from London uh, to come and... Uh, well, do what missionaries did. He built a church. He built a house for himself. He built a residential school. He took the children away from their parents. He forbade them to speak their own language or practice their own customs or wear their own clothes. And he did his best to destroy Siksika culture. 
Adrian, on your side, you belong to the Six Second Nation in Alberta, where you live and where we're talking to you right now. Your great-grandfather was a chief named Old Son. Who was he? Uh, chief Old Son, or Natasapi, uh, was my great-great-great-grandfather and um, uh, was the leader of um, uh, a number of uh, people on the nation. He was one of the signatures to uh, Treaty 7 at the time when uh, the uh, treaty was made in 1877, uh, well-respected uh, leader and um, also a little bit of a um, naysayer, in a sense, to the treaties. He was highly suspicious of the newcomers. And uh, I know that uh, there are stories that uh, he didn't want to sign treaty, but in the end acquiesced. So he was a bit of a rebel and also a very uh, fearless leader. And A.A., um, your, your two, I mean, Adrian's great-great-grandfather and your great-grandfather were sort of adversaries, am I right? Uh, by the family stories, they were arch enemies, yes. So the genesis for this project centers around the Six Sikker Rebellion of 1895. Adrian, briefly, can you tell us the story of what we know happened at that time? Um, it's interesting because uh, there's uh, very little information uh, here at Sixica on that. Uh, there is the knowledge that a conflict happened around that time and that the uh, church uh, was burnt. But uh, as far as any sort of uh, written documentation, there was very little. Uh, but the, the stories passed on through generations always indicated that there was this moment uh, when the residential schools were first opened. And due to the uh, sort of the, the disease going around at the time and the children were, uh, were dying. And sadly, Reverend Timms would not allow those uh, children to go home. So you can imagine the uh, sadness and anger uh, that uh, the parents felt. And uh, it was uh, through those parents that, uh, that Reverend Timms was actually warned uh, to leave the nation. And uh, following that was the burning down of the uh, school and such. AA, this is such a, a big part of your family's history, and, and you've said for a while that you've been meaning to address this part of your family's history. In fact, you said something interesting. You said something along the lines of, I've been hurtling towards this project for seven decades. So why was now the right time? <laughs> well, um, I guess there's different ways of answering that. One way of answering it is that the Canada Council brought out a, a, a grant for the 150th anniversary of Canada and invited people to dream up uh, projects that uh, addressed the 150 years of, of Canadian history. And since I've been meaning to do something with this all my life, uh, it, it became the obvious time to do it. Also, I'm 74 now, so if I don't do it soon, I won't get to do it at all. And also, you know, as time has gone by, uh, I think for everyone, uh, the, the relationship to these stories, our relationships to these stories has been shifting and changing. And now, uh, I, now I feel like it's a time when people can hear it, and uh, some people at least. And even 10 years ago, it might not have been possible. So I moved ahead. I should point out for people listening that, Adrian, you're a residential school survivor. You attended three residential schools as a day student, was there any cynicism about this apology, either from you or from your community? Well, I think when it comes to apologies, there's often a lot of cynicism. You know, I think that uh, there's always sort of the, the, the saying, uh, walk the talk. And certainly, you know, when apologies are given, often you know, the walk afterwards is a sort of a, uh, either non-existent or very slow. Uh, and so, 
yes, there is cynicism. But also, um, when AA first approached us, and then I in turn went to the elders and asked them, uh, one of the elders, uh, Myrna, sort of indicated that uh, it's not too often that somebody comes to us with an apology. And it's perhaps very important that we listen to it. And uh, so really that cynicism sort of sort of went away uh, at that point and sort of genuinely we decided that, no, this is important. Let's uh, listen to him. And he's approaching us in the right way. So I think that uh, for us, we put that aside uh, at that time and uh, move forward. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. I'm speaking with Canadian visual artists Adrian Stimson and A.A. Bronson. We're talking about a project called A Public Apology to Siksikan Nation, an art project that seeks to apologize for acts of genocide towards Indigenous people on Siksikan Nation in Alberta that were carried out by A.A.'s great-grandfather, Reverend John William Timms. Well, let's talk a little bit about the apologies themselves. So, AA, this all came to fruition at the Toronto Biennial last September. You performed two public apologies at the Biennial. I wonder if you could paint a picture for us. Tell me about those apologies. Oh, what can I say? I mean, the apology is a pre-written text, which, which you know, all, also exists also exists as a, as a small book. And uh, and so, by delivering the apology, essentially, I I read the text. And I don't think I could have done it any other way. It would have been would have been impossible to just do it off the top of my head. It was a, a d- deeply emotional event. Actually, I, I thought maybe I would offer to read two or three pages from it, if you're willing. Sure, go ahead. <clears throat> I speak to old son, the great Siksika chief, after whom the Siksika residential school was named, great-grandfather, apparently great-great-great-grandfather, to Adrian Stimson. I speak to Red Crow and Chief White Pup and Crowfoot and to Three Bulls and to the other great Siksika chiefs of the, great, of the late 19th century, to the Siksika children who Reverend Timms forbade to speak their own language, to those children then separated from their parents, partitioned from their own culture, forbidden to perform their own rituals or eat their own foods, prevented from attending their own dances, especially the circle camp, or the sun dance to all the children who were abused at Old Sun Industrial School, whether physically, sexually, emotionally, or spiritually, to all those children who escaped the Old Sun Industrial School and who were caught and returned, and to those who escaped and did not return, to the Siksika parents who were denied access to their beloved children, especially in 1895, when the European scourge of diphtheria and tuberculosis broke out in the school and the children were dying. To the children who died then in that fateful year and were not allowed to see their parents in their last days, I speak to Henry Scratching Hyde, his son, one of the first to die, who killed the stockman, Frank Skinner, called Allies and was in turn killed, and especially to Mabel Cree, the child who died of diphtheria in Old Sun Industrial School without her parents, and to those who mourned Mabel Cree, to White Pup and to Big Road and to Calf Child and to Red Old Man and to the others whose names I cannot know, to her father, Greasy Forehead, and to her mother and to her uncle, The Wood, who came to confront the Reverend Timms and was admonished for using the front door and sent to the kitchen door, and to all Mabel Cree's relations, to the medicine men who were not allowed to attend to the dying children, and to Dr. Lindsay, the white doctor whose ministrations did not help, to the cutter who took matters into his own hands, who set out for the mission house 
intending to kill the Reverend Mr. Timms, but was intercepted and sent home. And to Mr. William Baker, the farm instructor, who intercepted him and sent him home. To Maple's mother, who also went to the house, with drawn knife, but was taken away by three men. I speak to those who stood in front of that same doomed house chanting Tim's name as they shot stray dogs. I speak to white pup, big road and calf child who protected the lives of other white settlers in exchange for the ability to mourn Mabel Cree in their own homes. I speak to running rabbit, to head old man and to little chief and I invoke the family story. I speak to those who set fire then to the mission and to the church and to old son industrial school and burnt them to the ground. I speak to all those who participated in the Siksika uprising of 1895. Hey, thank you for, for reading that. That's A.A. Uh, a. Bronson reading from a public apology to Siksika Nation. Um, Adrian, how do you feel just hearing that uh, just then? <laughs> it still resonates and... Oh, a big breath. It, it, it still resonates and it, it's very uh, touching. And uh, so for me, it was something that, you know, uh, somebody actually is listening to us and somebody actually sort of took the time uh, to do the research. And for us, and I know for me, uh, it resonates still as, uh, as AA um, speaks it. So it's very important. And for us here at Siksika, and I think it's really important, you know, for Canadians to sort of realize and uh, research this history and feel this history and, you know, understand and empathize. And so I think uh, when it comes to ideas of conciliation, you know, when the government apologizes, you know, that's fine. And a lot of people did a lot of work around that. But the real acts of conciliation happen between individuals. It's the people themselves that have to take it on upon themselves to uh, find ways uh, of, you know, creating relationships. And uh, it, it may not always end up, end up in an apology, but at the same time, it's so important to understand that history and look to ways of uh, repairing and recreating uh, or creating uh, new relationships into the future. Hey, what do you feel when you read it, even now? Oh, it's hard to it's hard to read. Well, you know what it is. It's a it's an invocation of the dead. It's inviting the dead to join us in considering this piece of history. And I do believe we are a community of the living and the dead. We can't, you know, we can't escape that. The dead are part of us, um, and and that uh, that needs to be acknowledged. And that harm that my ancestors did to. Adrian's ancestors needs to be acknowledged and brought into the room, and we need to sit with that history. It is it is profound to even sit with it now over Zoom. I must say it's it's incredibly powerful. I want to talk about the Toronto Biennial where that apology was read. Adrian, you responded to the apology with a few art pieces, including a dinner table and a wall of photos. I, I found this really powerful to look at as well. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You bet. Uh, the table is called Ini Sukhkumapi, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner? And uh, based on the original meeting uh, between AA and myself and a group of elders and um, uh, uh, Ben Miller, who came with AA and, and such. So uh, invited them to the nation. And uh, so I uh, 
took on my uh, alter ego, Buffalo Boy, and we created a dinner and uh, invited elders and, and such and uh, met. And uh, it was at that dinner table that we asked the hard questions about apologies, about uh, you know, the history uh, that, that occurred uh, between uh, the Reverend Tim's uh, and the Sixica people. And it was, uh, so it was at that table, you know, that we, that AA, you know, first mentioned uh, genocide. And, uh, and then it also, an important moment was uh, when one of the elders spoke to this idea of, uh, you know, somebody is listening to us, and how heartfelt that that was. So for the response uh, to the apology, uh, I determined to recreate this table. And I actually had a former Olson residential school survivor, um, Gordon Littlelight, uh, build a table for me, a facsimile of one that I researched that was very similar to the ones that were there. And then I f- I finally appointed it uh, with fine silver and uh, dishware and, and such. Of course, you know, being the opposite to what have act- actually would have existed at that time. And then put a uh, little bronze bison on each plate as a sort of in looking at the diner as a way of interrogating. Because I often, a lot of my work also deals with the history of the slaughter of the bison, which is very analogous to, to what happened to the people. And so also a um, vase of white roses with uh, one red rose, you know, speaking to the idea of assimilation and uh, what, you know, aggressive assimilation the government was doing at that time. And then above it, an actual light uh, from Old Sun Residential School. Over the years, I've collected uh, material culture from the school as it's gone through various renovations. My mother worked there, so I was able to get access uh, to that. And then the uh, wall of photographs are actually part of an archive that uh, I have of school pictures uh, from 1955 of the Old Sun Boys. And as I was looking through those pictures, it really struck me uh, that uh, all of those boys are now our fathers here on the nation, many who have passed and some who are still with us. So for me, it was just very, very touching in the sense that looking at these individual photographs, you know, you could, you know, although many were smiling, you could only imagine uh, the heartache that existed of being taken away from their families and having to live in that school. And I certainly know that from my father's own stories of being in, in that place. So I really felt it was important uh, for those uh, photographs to be a part of the installation in a sense, looking back at us, you know, as uh, AA uh, said, this idea that, you know, the living and the dead uh, are all very much a, a part of this. So I really felt it very important to uh, to include that as well, along with the uh, with the other elements. And, the and, and and as Adrian mentions, there you you know AA you traveled to Siksika Nation, and you know you had dinner and you, and I saw videos of you getting to actually tour the old residential school, which is now I believe a community college. You know what? Just tell me about that experience. What were you feeling while you were there? Oh, that's complicated. Uh, well, first of all, there's the just immense beauty of the of the place. You know this. Uh, this feeling of endless space and sky, which I guess anybody who's familiar with the prairies knows about, but it seemed particularly vivid there. You 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 feel like you step out of time. You know, you're not in you're not in any particular century. You're in some timeless, vast space. And then the other thing was that, especially in the uh, school itself, uh, there was this uh, intense kind of darkness. This uh, this feeling of uh, what had happened on this site. 
Um, and, and frankly, I, I don't know how that, how the, I mean, the school was rebuilt in brick after it burnt down. And I, I don't know how it stays standing. If I were, <laughs> if I were Siksika, I would burn it down again if it were me. And, uh, it's a, uh, it's a, you know, it's a place of evil as far as I'm concerned. It's wonderful that they've tried to turn it into something positive, into mm-hmm. a community center, and something that, that is of service to the people. But it's, uh, but it's, uh, it's a bizarre place. It's a strange place. Yeah, and there's a, there's a really powerful moment in Sean O'Neill's in the making documentary about this, where you talk about the and those two things um, juxtaposing one another: the endless sky, the beautiful sky, and the and the bars and the container of the res- residential school, and how you would look out the window and you would see the world go on forever, knowing that you couldn't go anywhere mm-hmm. near it. Um, Adrian, y- you used conciliation earlier when we when you were talking about. The, the apology, the government apologies for residential schools and the government apologies done by uh, Prime Minister Harper and the government apologies done by Prime Minister Trudeau. AA, to you, is, is this about reconciliation, which is a term, truth and reconciliation, that's, that's used a lot uh, in Canada right now? You can't have reconciliation without conciliation first. <laughs> and there's never been conciliation. So I, I think reconciliation isn't quite the right word. Adrian, what do you think? Yeah, I would totally agree. <laughs> yeah, exactly what AA said. And I always sort of thought about that when the the term reconciliation was uh, used, and in the sense that it's you know that's not, we've not done it before, <laughs> and it's like no, it's uh, conciliation. It's a process of speaking to the past and 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 looking uh, looking to the future and how how do we mend uh, this broken relationship? And I want to point out that AA for people listening to this, the AA didn't just kind of do. This after after he apologized and say, okay, well now that's that's done. In fact, you 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 address some of the questions that people might be having right now, in that you say, can one ever really apologize for a genocide? How can one apologize for a genocide? You're a few years into this project right now, so I want to know you're thinking on this whether it's grown or not. Is it possible to apologize for a genocide? Eh? Well, of course it's physically possible and that's what I'm doing but no in the in the big picture no there's there's nothing that can be said there's 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 no way to make up for what was done you know that's impossible uh it's uh it's it's just the the more I look at it and the more I study it the, the more immense the more immense and uh tragic the event the events become you know of i mean just it's just unbelievable really unbelievable we spent a lot of time in the uh, archive at the glenbow museum and and uh, it's very interesting because uh the events of the three weeks leading up to the burning down of the buildings are not evident anywhere in the archive for example in any sort of journals or records, the pages of that three-week period have been torn out. Mm-hmm. And even in Toronto, when we did uh, uh, some research here in, in there in Toronto as well, um, like microfiche had been destroyed from that period where we knew that, for example, there was a Globe article about the uprising. And in the records of the Anglican Church, there was no such uprising, just Tim's was reassigned reassigned to a different church after some vague trouble. And the story was basically, it was really erased from history. And it was through the very vigilant 
intense research by my assistant, uh, Ben Miller, that we were able to uh, reassemble the story. And of course, the story comes from the dinner table. You know, it comes from stories that my father told and my grandfather told. Um, we had to kind of re reassemble history that had been erased. This is Q. I'm Tom Power. You've been listening to the first part of my conversation with two Canadian visual artists, A.A. Bronson and Adrian Stimson. They were talking about their art project, A Public Apology to Six Sick and Nation. A.A. Bronson says he started the project to try and make amends for the genocide of Indigenous people in Canada, which his family participated in. And even though the project was presented at the Toronto Biennial of Art last year, I don't want you to get the impression that this work is done. Um, I mean, first of all, as AA has said, there's no period at the end of the sentence. There's no way to fully apologize for genocide. The project is ongoing, constantly evolving. Here's what Adrian Stimson had to say about that. No, absolutely. Um, you know, the the um, when uh, AA made the apology at the uh, Toronto uh, Biennale, um, he actually brought out uh, the elders uh, to witness. And uh, before that, part of the process for me was actually approaching our chief and council, explaining uh, what uh, AA wanted to do in relation to the apology, getting their blessing in a sense to to uh, go and receive the apology. Uh, and so we did that, and and that was sort of that that time where we're able to sort of the elder there feel it and, and, and bring it back. And so part of that also was that sharing uh, the apology with nation members. Uh, the book itself has been uh, distributed widely on the nation. And, uh, and there's another part to it. Uh, it was to come back this past or this uh, spring, but as we all know, COVID sort of changed everything in our worlds. And um, at that time, uh, to uh, we would do a uh, powwow. Uh, it's my responsibility, since I've been uh, directly interacting with AA, to sponsor a uh, powwow, in particular a round dance, uh, where the community comes together. Uh, AA would make the apology at the community, and then we would dance together and then feast together. And really, that would sort of round out the, the apology in all. But I often look at this as a lifelong process. You know, the, the, the trust that existed between us as peoples was broken uh, many years ago. And it really takes uh, individuals to rebuild that trust. So between AA and I, we've been building that trust. And as I mentioned earlier, he's really gone about it, uh, the apology, very respectfully and very intentfully. And so uh, for us to, to see that and to feel that uh, is very heartwarming. And so the, the people, you know, uh, there's a point that we need to celebrate that. And so that's what the uh, sort of sort of final phase. But uh, I do believe that our friendship uh, will now last a lifetime. And uh, that speaks a lot to the importance of, of, of conciliation and what we can do individually. Are, are you changed? Like, are you, are you changed as a person from the beginning of this project until now? Uh, I believe so. You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, uh, I ha more recently, I was submitting my claim for the day school and going through all the past certs that I experienced and, and, and sort of feeling that sadness, that, that anger, that, 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 uh, that history. Yeah. Uh, but I have to say that uh, the process of working with AA on this has, I guess, is, 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 it is, has been healing. Uh, I, I do have a, a better sense or uh, a sense of wellness, um, calmness, uh, all those things. So it's, I believe it's, it's an important step in my own personal journey. 
And uh, I know for the elders who were present, they felt very much the same that, you know, they really felt somebody listened to them. And in listening to them, that, uh, that hurt and that anger, that resentment, all those things that, that come uh, with uh, that, that history is somewhat lessened. You know, it, it never will ever go away. But at the same time, as you build trust, as you build friendships, as you come to know and come to understand that, you know, in the hearts of, of many people, uh, there is a willingness uh, to change and to um, address these things and move forward in a good way. So in, in, in seeing that, it certainly, uh, I guess, gives us hope uh, that, uh, that, other, you know, that other people will start doing this and actually really you know, start walking the walk uh, of an apology. AA, same question to you. From the conception of this project until now, how do you feel changed? I'm not sure that anybody ever changes, but um, uh, certainly uh, I've been diving deep into it. So in that sense, in that sense, I'm changed. And I, th I think in particular, I understand much better my father and my relationship to my father and his relationship to his father. How, how do you mean? His relationship to his father, you know, like the especially on the male side of the family, I understand things that I never understood before. Because there's a, there's, a, there's a history of trauma in your family. I mean, your father, uh, I, be, I believe, ran away from home and your, and your grandfather continued the sort of the tradition of residential schools that your great-grandfather had said. Yeah. I, I understand what you mean there. Yeah, and well, it's a much bigger story than that, but it's, that's, that's the central core of it, I guess. Can you, can you speak to me a little bit more about how you understand the relationship between the, the male lineage in your family? Oh, my God. Um, if you're able to. I mean, it's not, not you know, if it's not too painful. <laughs> well, no, I, I, I could do it more metaphorically. I mean, I, I th immediately think of two experiences I had. Both of, they're, they're both a little bit, uh, you know, new agey, if you don't mind that. Of course. One, it's, one, a, it's a CBC. <laughs> in one, I was I was being led through in a workshop in my late forties. I was being led through a visualization, and uh, I was lying alone in the dark with just one person guide, guiding the visualization. And what uh, I had this vision suddenly of my, and it struck me as very weird because I, at that time my father was alive, I believe, and I didn't have. Um, I didn't have really any relationship to him at all. And I had this intense feeling of suddenly I could see my father on my left side, my father and over him, his father and over him, his father. And I could see all these, this kind of stream of fathers of fathers of fathers of fathers of fathers. And it was very, very emotional, but I didn't really know what it was. I really had no idea what it was or what it was about, but I knew that it was something big that was kind of coming my way you know and that that was maybe the the beginning of the feeling of the intensity of it and then the other thing uh which is like a different version of the same thing in a way i went to see a very old uh psychic in new york uh, at the end of the 80s um reverend bias who had founded a um he had founded a, a national church the universal universal psychic church or mm -hmm. something like that. It was a church for psychics. 
and they were all over the US. There was quite a lot of them. And uh, he was a famous psychic and I went to see him. And the very first thing he said was, you know, before I say anything else, I just have to say that over your, uh, over your left, over your right shoulder, you have, um, and he described my great grandfather exactly, you know, the, as he looked towards the end of his life. It could have been any priest in a way, but with a big white beard and so on and so forth. And then over your left shoulder, he described, he said a, na a native, you know, like a chief. And he described uh, in enormous detail, this costume. And um, and he said, they're your, two, they're your two guides in life. And so, you know, there's something waiting for you there. As soon as, I don't remember any of the session outside of that at all, that's all I remember. And as soon as I got out, I phoned my father who was still alive then and I asked him about this, uh, the native person. And he said, oh, that's old son. He said, that's, <laughs> that's unmistakable because only old son dressed like that. Uh, mm -hmm. So uh, those, those two kind of oddball events kind of frame that. Well, uh, I, I'm understanding even more what you said about You've been hurtling towards this for seven decades. I, I, I'm, I'm under, yeah, there's I, a lot of there's a lot of stories along the way that I could tell. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and 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 I, I want to be clear here, and maybe this is a good way to close things off. Is that you know we've been talking a little bit about the past here. You know, we've been talking about you know reckoning with with um, AA's uh, family history, and and in many ways the history of of settlers in Canada, um, you know, of, of white people in Canada, of, of colonization in Canada. And we've been talking a little bit about the history of, of yourself, Adrian, and your family's history. But is, is this apology, and you sort of touched on this, Adrian, and I, I kind of want you to expand on it if you can. How is this apology also about the future? How is this apology not just about the past, but about envisioning a better future? I like the saying that if you don't know where you've been, you don't know where you're going. <laughs> and so I think that part of this is, is understanding that history and understanding uh, the mistakes that were made. And also looking at, uh, and looking at that history, finding ways that we can move uh, together into the future. And I think that, uh, you know, here and now, uh, relationships are built between individuals, and uh, it's those relationships that can uh, speak a lot to better ways of being. So I do really believe that uh, th this particular uh, process and apology uh, has really sort of paved the way for uh, for uh, better future relationships, you know, certainly between AA and I and, and, and also the elders and, you know, giving a sense of hope and, and faith that, you know, yeah, yes, some, you know, people are listening. Uh, I know that a lot more people need to listen and, uh, you know, look to ways of, of conciliation and, and creating uh, better relationships across the country. So I think that, uh, that uh, it is uh, looking more uh, to the future uh, because it is, we do, uh, you know, we're all here. And uh, I'd hate to think about the uh, opposite if we didn't do this, uh, that we'd end up in nothing but conflict. Uh, so I think that uh, we have to seek ways of, uh, of being together, of living together, of uh, understanding and visioning a future that, you know, is for all of us. And so I think uh, this is one small part in that. Well, I want to thank you both so much for your time. Um, uh, Adrian, for your, your perspective and your story, AA, for, for reading that piece and your perspective and your story as well. And, and uh, thank you both so much. Take care. Thank you. Thank you so much. Love to be with you today.
That's Adrian Stimson, who joined me from Six Second Nation in Alberta, and A.A. Bronson, who joined me from Berlin, Germany. You can find out more about their art project, A Public Apology to Six Second Nation, over on our website, cbc.ca slash Q. And that's where you'll find the other interviews we're featuring on the show all week long as part of our Art Connects on Q series. It explores how artists are bringing people together in these challenging times. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. So now that fall has arrived and you're about to start lowering yourself into a pumpkin spice bath every night. It's an expensive bath, by the way. It takes like hundreds of lattes to fill the tub and those things. They're not cheap. Anyway, totally worth it. You might be thinking about some good cozy books to keep you company in there. And that's where J.L. Richardson swoops in to help. J.L. is an author. She's the artistic director of Fold, the Festival of Literary Diversity. She drops by every so often to talk about books here on Q. Let us know what she's reading, what she couldn't put down, and more importantly, what you should pick up. Today, she's here with a spooky pick that goes perfectly with the fall chill in the air. Hi, J.L. How are you? Tom, I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, how was your summer reading? I, I imagine you in the summertime just lying on a beach, <laughs> drinking a margarita, and reading like 43 books in a row. Um, not quite. I mean, there there weren't a lot of beaches in the summer <laughs> for sure, um, and there certainly weren't that many books. Um, I still had a bit of trouble in in quarantine and COVID life getting all my reading in. But I started to really hone in on books that I loved and really just being kind of relentless. If I didn't love the first few pages, like, that's it. (laughs) That's a good way to live your life, I find. Try things briefly. And then if you don't like them right away, get out of there. Absolutely. What is the book you chose this week? So the book I chose this week is Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. And I'm obsessed with covers, as you might know, Tom. And so this one was like, saw the cover and I was in from the beginning uh, and then even further later on. But um, the cover has this beautiful uh, woman. She's wearing a a deep red purple gown. And then there's this uh, green wallpaper behind her. And you can see most of her face, but not quite all of it. And she's holding these like wilting or wild flowers. Um, And so I loved it. And I was like, I want to know what that's about. And when I read what it was about... I was in. You, this is a horror book. I, I don't think you've ever picked a horror book for us before. Yeah. I mean, I'm not usually like a big horror fan. It's not something I pick up regularly. But in this job, I really like to try different things and show people different things. And I think like for horror movies, terrify me, like terrify me. And so I've never really known how to feel about the books either. 
But this one, as soon as I started reading it, like the writing is so compelling. Um, there's really, it's set in Mexico City in the in the 50s. And so there's this sort of like old way of writing to it too, uh, that was really appealing as well. I, I read the first chapter and I was like, I'm going to love this novel. Like, I just know it. Okay. So let's get to brass tacks here. What is this book about? <laughs> So the main character in Mexican Gothic is Noemi, and she's this wealthy socialite. She lives in Mexico City. She's like a city girl, loves parties, social life, all those kinds of things. And her father pulls her out of this party to let her know that something is wrong. Her cousin, who lives out in the country, she's married, but she's not doing so well. And now they've sent, uh, her cousin has actually sent for her to go and see her. And so Noemi leaves the city. She goes to High Place on the countryside to visit her cousin who's living with her in-laws in this giant castle-like estate. Mm. And you know right away as Noemi pulls out <laughs> that something is not okay here. <laughs> Things don't go right on a giant castle-like estate in general, you know. No, no, not usually, especially when you know it's a horror novel. But yeah, it's it was really just from the beginning, the description of the space and the place, you just have this epic picture of what's going to happen. Oh, I was so excited about this. You're going to give us a little reading, right? Mm, okay, so this is the excerpt. This is the first time Noemi sees High Place, which is the castle. So I'm just going to read a short Okay. The house loomed over them like a great, quiet gargoyle. It might have been foreboding, evoking images of ghosts and haunted places, if it had not seemed so tired, slats missing from a couple of shutters, the ebony porch groaning as they made their way up the steps to the door, which came complete with a silver knocker shaped like a fist dangling from a circle. It's the abandoned shell of a snail, she told herself. Oh my God, that's so creepy. <laughs> Oh, your porch is only grown in scary books. Yes. Um, JL, who is this book for? Is it about people who like scary things? Is it about people who intentionally try to scare themselves? Is it for people like me and you who try to avoid horror movies? Who's it for? Well, when I first started reading it, I thought a lot about Secret Garden, which I watched and read religiously when I was younger. And I also thought about Downton Abbey, like a creepy Downton Abbey with this formal estate and the the, the, the servants in the house. Um, but what I thought about most as I got further and further in the novel was Get Out, uh, which is a film about race and racism. And you know in Get Out that something's off. But you can't quite figure it out, and it only gets worse. And so I think that great horror for me, especially in, in literature and films like that, is about the progression of creepiness, where you're sort of lulled into a false sense of safety while also always knowing something is wrong. T tell me more about that. Like, Get Out is a, is a film that is ostensibly a horror film. Obviously, it talks about racism and, and, and is in some ways about racism. So what about uh, this book? Is, is similar like what book how does this book use horror to talk use social commentaries at the same time yeah i mean i really love that i think that's one of the things that appeals to me about mexican gothic is the way that it addresses it talks a lot about feminism and women's rights and classism is a big thing uh, the backstory behind high place and what ends up happening while noemi's there really starts to comment on a culture of oppression and the way people have been mistreated. And what I think I, I, I learned from reading this book and thinking about Get Out is the idea that horror can really powerfully point to these more serious issues. Um, so often the, the dismissal of horror is that it's too gory, it's too dark, it's too scary. And I think when you're using it to comment on things like racism and social injustice, you get to see like, yeah, this book, this film might be scary, but the reality of these things should scare you even more. 
Mexican Gothic, this book you're talking about, is already in development to be a TV series for Hulu. After reading the book, are you going to watch the television show through your fingers? Uh, absolutely. I will watch it because I, I can picture just like the way light and dark and shadows and all the things that happen in the house while Naomi's there that start to get really creep, creepy. I can totally picture that in a film or TV series, but I will have a pillow up against my face, which is how I watch like all horrors, <laughs> I, I, clutching a pillow and raising it up and down slightly. I mean, I don't think we're going to go trick or treating this year. Do you, Jill? Uh, I don't know. My son is hoping so, but you know, not me. <laughs> I, yeah, I don't, I don't know how I would feel about going trick or treating this year. I'm sure they're going to come out with some kind of rules around trick or treating soon, but maybe, maybe this is a good thing to do instead of going trick or treating, mm. sit down, maybe read Mexican Gothic with your kids. Yes, I wouldn't recommend necessarily reading it with your tiny children, <laughs> but I do love the idea of reading something creepy on Halloween if we're not able to go out and about. Well, maybe we can get another pick off you then. JL, thank you so much for your time today. <laughs> thank you for having me. Now, since you're on Zoom, I'm going to get you to stick around so you can read out the name of the book as you always do when you're in person. But because we can't awesome. see each other, I'm going to get you to do it. So let me do the extra here. Okay. JL Richardson is an author and artistic director of Fold, the Festival of Literary Diversity. She drops by the show every so often to talk about books. Her pick today was... Mexican Gothic by Silvia Moreno-Garcia. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Here's a story for you. But first, listen to this. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the honey drippers in the house tonight. And they just got back from Washington, D.C. I think they got something they want to say. You hear that beat there? That's called the foundational beat or one of the foundational beats of hip hop. And the guy behind it, Roy Hammond, died last week. He was 81. So I'm just turn that up for a second there. All right. So Roy Hammond makes this funk band in high school in Jamaica, Queens to record that song. He releases it 50 years ago in 1973. It's called Impeach the President. And it's about U.S. President Richard Nixon. I should back up and say that Roy Hammond was also a soul singer in his own right. He went by the name of Roy C., but his most important contribution is the breakbeat you're hearing right now. It's been sampled hundreds of times. The first time it was used on a record, it was like the ground shifted under the New York hip-hop scene. You love to hear the story again and again of how it all got started way back when. The monument is right in your face. Sit and listen for a while to the name of the place. Like, that's MC Shan with The Bridge from 86, but that was just the beginning. Notorious B.I.G., LL Cool J, Janet Jackson, Dr. Dre, Tupac, they all sampled Impeach the President, written and recorded by Roy Hammond five decades ago. Roy Hammond, also known as Roy C., died last week at the age of 81 of liver cancer. Larry Lath, third, least not last. A cool brother by the name of Gas. My name is Tom Power. Take a listen to this. Mama, 
Mama, you can bet the title track off the latest album from G.O.T., better known as Georgia Ann Muldrow. G.O.T. is a kind of persona she's adopted on some of her recent records. She's a Grammy-nominated singer, songwriter, producer, and multi-instrumentalist. And ever since she arrived on the scene in the early 2000s, she's been blending jazz and R&B and soul and hip-hop and pushing the boundaries of what those genres can sound like. Her innovative approach has helped her reach a whole new generation of fans. Mama You Can Bet is the third album she's released as her Jyoti persona. The record is a reflection on the ways her mother influenced her. Jyoti, join me on the line to tell us more. Welcome to the show. It's great to be here, Tom. It's nice to have you. I wanted to talk about so much with you, and we don't have a whole lot of time, but I wanted to start with this. What is? Yeah. What are we listening to? You're listening to me, she can't let ya. Yeah, it's my folks, man. You know, a proto boogie jam. You know what I'm saying? The year was 1982. She Can't Love You from the husband and wife duo Shamiz. Ricky Byers on vocals. Ron Muldrow, uh, uh, the parents of my guest here. What goes through your mind when you hear that now? I don't know. It's like every time I hear that, I just go like, yes, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, like my parents are small people. You know what I mean? They, they all types of di- the, all the different kind of music that they make. It's like, I'm just like that. I'm just, you know what I'm saying? Because it, 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 you're right. It is cool like that. Like, it, it, Listening to that song, it'd be easy to get the wrong idea about your parents because that song was more of a, like a one-off R&B single. The reality is your mom and your dad, session musicians, work with some of the great jazz artists of our time, Pharoah Sanders, Eddie Harris, Roland Hanna, right? Absolutely. I mean, even more. I mean, go it go even deeper. You know, you got Maceo, Sonny Stitt, you know what I'm saying? You got, you, you know, you're talking about a whole, a lot of people. A lot of parents would steer their kids away from a life in music. Yeah. But your parents were all for it. What what lessons did you take from your mom in terms of a career in music? I think the first lesson is to use songwriting as a way to work out your feelings. Mm. That you have a tool at your own disposal to figure out what's inside your head. And I think the second thing is the, um, being an independent business person. You know, like I've seen her give herself a record deal many times, you know, and, and seeing CDs being shipped, like, you know, in bulk, getting shipped to the house, you know, so I never had no fear of being an independent artist, you know. How about your dad? What did you learn from your dad? I learned from my dad, like, approaching your skill set seriously and, and building technique, um, harmonic complexity, rhythm like the the drive and like the the you gotta want to refine your technique all the time you know what i'm saying like like you're never finished in where you're trying to go you know what i'm saying yeah when when you call the album mama you can bet what does that title mean to you i wanted to be i wanted it to be like a a book 
Like, you know how some books be like, like, like a children's book, like a Dr. Seuss, like all oh, the places you go. Mm-hmm. And my mom's last record is called My Oh My, It's Time to Fly. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, Mama, you can bet. <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah. I want to take a listen to something off the record. Listen to this. Maybe this walk is everything. Talk so much no more. That's This Walk, a song off the latest album by my guest Jyoti, who some might know as producer, singer, and artist Georgia and Muldrow. What can you tell me about that song? I still love it so much. You know, sometimes, like, I can make a song and be tired of it, you know? But I still love it so much, you know? Where did it come from? Come from frustration. Come from pain. Stubbornness of like the human spirit to like try to repeat cycles, you know what I'm saying? That don't need to repeat. I I read you say this that the song was about the ways that violence can both ignite and snuff out a voice. That too. You know, when you see violence articulating on your people of all walks of life as long you know what I'm saying when you see um that even the structures of power that seek to be democratic you know and seek to be you know fair are leaning in the direction of your destruction I mean and the album's coming out at a time when anti-black racism black death black trauma in the US and here in Canada are top of mind in so many of the conversations we're having daily like how many how much of those conversations informed this album i've literally made my whole musical career like my whole like in every piece of music i've created this is has life you know i've i've dedicated my life to to having this dialogue in my musical catalog so it's, you know, I've been about it for a long time. You know what I'm saying? I've been about this life a very, very, since I was about, since the day I learned about the transatlantic slave trade. Mm. And I, I think, I, I believe I was three years old. So from that time on, I've been having a vested interest in in learning, in communicating how I feel about that. And making art that has something to do with the presentation of thought, feeling, and motion um, in, in, in my culture, you know? What, what, do you, what do you think that art can do that maybe the news can't in, in having these conversations? You ain't gonna lie. I know that. Yeah. In art, there's it's more it's more normal for people to tell their own story instead of someone else's story. You know, 
I mean, depending on what our world you're in. I mean, it's like, to me, like art versus the news. You know, I think people, I think news has made an art of programming people to think a certain way, you know, just because it's not the art I dig, I, I still see that people, you know, there's a producer involved. Just like you produce a record, right? Right. Yeah. It's created. It's, 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 yeah. um, it's I mean, it's, it's just like it's structured. You know, yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's a production, you know, it's all media. It's all something that you are absorbing with your ears and your eyes, you know? And, and I, I feel that my art is a certain kind of newspaper as well of, 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 you know, of, of my life, of black people, black life, you know? I want to take a listen to another song off the record. Take a listen to this. This is Q. I'm Tom Power with my guest, singer-songwriter, producer, multi-instrumentalist, Gioti, a.k.a. Georgia Ann Muldrow. The song you're hearing right now is called Oregon, and it's off her latest brilliant album, Mama, You Can Bet. Um, I mentioned that Gioti is an alias you've used for a few of your projects, and when I was reading about it, I saw that it was a name given to you by the legend Alice Coltrane. What's, what's the story there? Too long for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> Can you give me the Coles notes? <laughs> yeah. Um pretty much the name means uh light. I'm sorry, I'm just thinking about her. <laughs> like, I'm all about you feeling as comfortable as you possibly can here. Don't yeah, you, you take it easy. Yeah. You know, you know, Alice Coltrane or or Swami Nee, she gave, she looked me in my eyes, she said, it's time for you to get your name. And it was the beginning of my soul um, opening up and blooming. How did you feel when you got the name? I loved it. I love that name. And like, and then like, it's funny because it's like, I, I look it up and learn about it, but only certain things would be available for me to find. Like, it's just, it's interesting how now it's unlocking so much more. A charge to be light of heart, a charge to do the things that I need to do to stay bright, you know? Yeah, I think so. You know, when I was reading about your record, you know, especially like the Mingus tunes on it it's fun you know i'm reading this book about monk right now i'm reading this book about Thelonious monk i love that book yeah like the 700 800 page one yeah i love it too uh, I, love it. I feel like i've been reading it for four years like it's so long but i really do love it <laughs> but what you know I read it about three days <laughs> you read that monk book in three days i read that like it's it's the longest i'm i'm loving it but like i felt like i was like a week into it and he still hadn't been born yet 
<laughs> yeah. And you know, that book, I don't know. It's like he inspired me. Like that book, I just loved it. I loved it because it confirmed everything I like I, I felt I already knew. You know what I mean? Because like Monk is in my heart. Like he has the same birthday as my mom, you know? Oh, no way. Really? Yeah. Like, so it's like, I feel like I know him. And like, you know, like, and I'm a Libra too. So it's like, it's this Libra nation thing. You know what I'm saying? And I feel like his music just his harmonic approach always made perfect sense to me. It, I feel like it's just like a perfect shape, his music is, you know? Before I let you go, you said that music was the gateway for you to be able to observe devotion. I love that word, devotion. Me too. Before we go, could you tell me more about it and what it means to you? Devotion is like an uptake in, It's like it, devotion is rooted and you believing in yourself enough to commit to something, you know? Devotion is like the act of putting your all into something. And when you, when you put your all into something, it refines you over and over again, you know? Because you figure it out. When you're putting your all into something, you figure out more of like what your all actually is, you know? And that's why I love devotion because it did nothing teach you about life and what's important. Like the the side effects that will be like, you know, somebody like Thundercat playing the way he play on his instrument. You know what I mean? It's like, that's the side effect of devotion. You know what I'm saying? Somebody like Alice Coltrane coming with these tones and stuff. Somebody like, you know, John Coltrane. You understand? Yeah. Cracking the code on, on the, the the cycle of fifths, you know, mm. like that that is devotion. Those are the side effects of devotion. But raw devotion is even like it's even beyond that. You know what I mean? What about you? What has devotion to music given you, just personally, you? It's given me clarity. It's given me inner peace. You know, it's given me clarity, inner peace, and confidence to live. I, I got to tell you, I really love talking to you today. Oh, that's appreciated. Thank you. Jyoti, a.k.a. Georgia Ann Muldrow, is an artist and producer based in Las Vegas. Her latest album is called Mama, You Can Bet, and it's out now. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, iconic filmmaker Miranda July will be here to talk about her new film, where she says that it's entirely possible that families are just weird little cults. We'll deal with that tomorrow. See you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.